0: Book Three, Chapter Seven of The History of Henry Esmond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Henry Esmond by William Makepeace Thackeray. Book Three The End of Mr. Esmond's Adventures in England. Chapter Seven I Visit Castlewood once more thus for the third time beatrix's ambitious hopes were circumvented and she might well believe that a special malignant fate watched and pursued her tearing her prize out of her hand just as she seemed to grasp it and leaving her with only rage and grief for her portion Whatever her feelings might have been of anger or of sorrow, and I fear me that the former emotion was that which tore her heart, she would take no confidant, as people of softer natures would have done under such a calamity. Her mother and her kinsmen knew that she would disdain their pity, and that to offer it would be but to infuriate the cruel wound which fortune had inflicted we knew that her pride was awfully humbled and punished by this sudden and terrible blow she wanted no teaching of ours to point out the sad moral of her story her fond mother could give but her prayers and her kinsman his faithful friendship and patience to the unhappy stricken creature and it was only by hints and a word or two uttered months afterwards that beatrix showed that she understood their silent commiseration and on her part was secretly thankful for their forbearance the people about the court said there was that in her manner which frightened away scoffing and condolence she was above their triumph and their pity and acted her part in that dreadful tragedy greatly and courageously so that those who liked her least were yet forced to admire her we who watched her after her disaster could not but respect the indomitable courage and majestic calm with which she bore it i would rather see her tears than her pride her mother said who was accustomed to bear her sorrows in a very different way, and to receive them as the stroke of God, with an awful submission and meekness. But Beatrix's nature was different to that tender parents. She seemed to accept her grief and to defy it, nor would she allow it, I believe not even in private, and in her own chamber, to extort from her the confession of even a tear of humiliation or a cry of pain friends and children of our race who come after me, in which way will you bear your trials? I know one that prays God will give you love rather than pride, and that the eye all-seeing shall find you in the humble place. Not that we should judge proud spirits otherwise than charitably. Tis nature hath fashioned some for ambition and dominion, as it hath formed others for obedience and gentle submission." the leopard follows his nature as the lamb does and acts after leopard law she can neither help her beauty nor her courage nor her cruelty nor a single spot on her shining coat nor the conquering spirit which impels her nor the shot which brings her down during that well-founded panic the whigs had lest the Queen should forsake their Hanoverian prince, bound by oaths and treaties as she was to him, and recall her brother, who was allied to her by yet stronger ties of nature and duty. The Prince of Savoy, and the boldest of that party of the Whigs, were for bringing the young Duke of Cambridge over, in spite of the Queen, and the outcry of her Tory servants, arguing that the Electoral Prince, a peer and prince of the blood royal of this realm too, and in the line of succession to the Crown, had a right to sit in the Parliament, whereof he was a member, and to dwell in the country which he one day was to govern. Nothing but the strongest ill-will expressed by the Queen, and the people about her, and menaces of the royal resentment, should this scheme be persisted in, prevented it from being carried into effect. The boldest on our side were, in like manner, for having our Prince into the country, the undoubted inheritor of the right divine the feelings of more than half the nation of almost all the clergy of the gentry of england and scotland with him entirely innocent of the crime for which his father suffered brave young handsome unfortunate who in england would dare to molest the prince should he come among us and fling himself upon british generosity hospitality and honour an invader with an army of frenchmen behind him englishmen of spirit would resist to the death and drive back to the shores whence he came but a prince alone armed with his right only and relying on the loyalty of his people was sure many of his friends argued of welcome or at least of safety among us the hand of his sister the queen of the people his subjects never could be raised to do him a wrong but the queen was timid by nature, and the successive ministers she had, had private causes for their irresolution. The bolder and honester men, who had at heart the illustrious young exile's cause, had no scheme of interest of their own to prevent them from seeing the right done, and, provided only he came as an Englishman, were ready to venture their all to welcome and defend him st john and harley both had kind words and plenty for the prince's adherents and gave him endless promises of future support but hints and promises were all they could be got to give and some of his friends were for measures much bolder more efficacious and more open with a party of these some of whom aren't yet alive and some of whose names mr esmond has no right to mention he found himself engaged the year after that miserable death of duke hamilton which deprived the prince of his most courageous ally in this country dean atterbury was one of the friends whom esmond may mention as the brave bishop is now beyond exile and persecution and to him and one or two more the colonel opened himself of a scheme of his own that backed by a little resolution on the prince's part could not fail of bringing about the accomplishment of their dearest wishes my lord young viscount castlewood had not come to england to keep his majority and had now been absent from the country for several years the year in which his sister was to be married and duke hamilton died my lord was kept at brussels by his wife's lying in the gentle clotilda could not bear her husband out of her sight perhaps she mistrusted the young scapegrace should he ever get loose from her leading-strings and she kept him by her side to nurse the baby and administer posset to the gossips Many a laugh poor Beatrix had had about Frank's uxoriousness. His mother would have gone to Clotilda when her time was coming, but that the mother-in-law was already in possession, and the negotiations for poor Beatrix's marriage were begun. A few months after the horrid catastrophe in Hyde Park, my mistress and her daughter retired to Castlewood, where my lord, it was expected, would soon join them but, to say truth, their quiet household was little to his taste. He could be got to come to Walcote, but once after his first campaign, and then the young rogue spent more than half his time in London, not appearing at court, or in public, under his own name and title, but frequenting plays, bagnos and the very worst company, under the name of Captain Esmond, whereby his innocent kinsman got more than once into trouble and so under various pretexts and in pursuit of all sorts of pleasures until he plunged into the lawful one of marriage frank castlewood had remained away from this country and was unknown save amongst the gentlemen of the army with whom he had served abroad the fond heart of his mother was pained by this long absence twas all that henry esmond could do to soothe her natural mortification and find excuses for his kinsman's levity In the autumn of the year 1713, Lord Castlewood thought of returning home. His first child had been a daughter. Clotilda was in the way of gratifying his lordship with a second, and the pious young thought that, by bringing his wife to his ancestral home, by prayers to St. Philip of Castlewood and what not, heaven might be induced to bless him with a son this time, for whose coming the expectant mamma was very anxious. The long-debated peace had been proclaimed this year at the end of March, and France was open to us. Just as Frank's poor mother had made all things ready for Lord Castlewood's reception, and was eagerly expecting her son, it was by Colonel Esmond's means that the kind lady was disappointed of her longing, and obliged to defer once more the darling hope of her heart. Esmond took horses to Castlewood, He had not seen its ancient grey towers and well-remembered woods for nearly fourteen years, and since he rode thence with my lord, to whom his mistress with her young children by her side waved an adieu. What ages seemed to have passed since then, what years of action and passion, of care, love, hope, disaster! The children were grown up now, and had stories of their own. As for Esmond, he felt to be a hundred years old. His dear mistress only seemed unchanged. She looked and welcomed him quite as of old. There was the fountain in the court, babbling its familiar music. The old hall and its furniture, the carved chair, my late lord used, the very flagon he drank from. Esmond's mistress knew he would like to sleep in the little room he used to occupy. Twas made ready for him, and wallflowers and sweet herbs set in the adjoining chamber. The chaplain's room in tears of not unmanly emotion with prayers of submission to the awful dispenser of death and life of evil and good fortune mr esmond passed a part of that first night at castlewood lying awake for many hours as the clock kept tolling in tones so well remembered looking back as all men will that revisit their home of childhood over the great gulf of time and surveying himself on the distant bank yonder a sad little melancholy boy with his lord still alive his dear mistress a girl yet her children sporting around her. Years ago, a boy on that very bed, when she had blessed him and called him her knight, he had made a vow to be faithful and never desert her dear service. Had he kept that fond boyish promise? Yes, before heaven, yes, praise be to God. His life had been hers, his blood, his fortune, his name, his whole heart ever since had been hers and her children's. All night long he was dreaming his boyhood over again, and waking fitfully. He half fancied he heard Father Holt calling to him from the next chamber, and that he was coming in and out from the mysterious window. Esmond rose up before the dawn, passed into the next room, where the air was heavy with the odour of the wallflowers, looked into the brazier where the papers had been burnt, into the old presses where Holt's books and papers had been kept, and tried the spring and whether the window worked still. The spring had not been touched for years, but yielded at length, and the whole fabric of the window sank down he lifted it and it relapsed into its frame. No one had ever passed thence since Holt used it sixteen years ago. Esmond remembered his poor lord saying, on the last day of his life, that Holt used to come in and out of the house like a ghost, and knew that the father liked these mysteries, and practised such secret disguises, entrances and exits. This was the way the ghost came and went, his pupil had always conjectured. Esmond closed the casement up again as the dawn was rising over Castlewood Village, he could hear the clinking at the blacksmith's forge yonder among the trees, across the green and past the river, on which a mist still lay sleeping. Next Esmond opened that long cupboard over the woodwork of the mantelpiece, big enough to hold a man, and in which Mr. Holt used to keep sundry secret properties of his. The two swords he remembered so well as a boy lay actually there still, and Esmond took them out and wiped them, with a strange curiosity of emotion." there were a bundle of papers here too which no doubt had been left at holt's last visit to the place in my lord viscount's life that very day when the priest had been arrested and taken to hexham castle esmond made free with these papers and found treasonable matter of king william's reign the names of charnock and perkins sir john fenwick and sir john friend rookwood and lodwick lords montgomery and Allesbury, clarendon and yarmouth that had all been engaged in plots against the usurper a letter from the duke of berwick too and one from the king at st germain offering to confer upon his trusty and well-beloved francis viscount castlewood the titles of earl and marquis of esmond bestowed by patent royal and in the fourth year of his reign upon thomas viscount castlewood and the heirs male of his body in default of which issue the ranks and dignities were to pass to francis aforesaid this was the paper whereof my lord had spoken which Holt showed to him in the very day he was arrested, and for an answer to which he would come back in a week's time. I put these papers hastily into the crypt whence I had taken them, being interrupted by a tapping of a light finger at the ring of the chamber-door. "'Twas my kind mistress, with her face full of love and welcome. She, too, had passed the night wakefully, no doubt, but neither asked the other how the hours had been spent. "'There are things we divine without speaking, and know, though they happen out of our sight.' "'This fond lady hath told me that she knew both days when I was wounded abroad. "'Who shall say how far sympathy reaches, and how truly love can prophesy? "'I looked into your room,' was all she said. "'The bed was vacant, the little old bed. "'I knew I should find you here.' "'And tender and blushing faintly with a benediction in her eyes, "'the gentle creature kissed him. "'They walked out, hand in hand, through the old court, and to the terrace-walk where the grass was glistening with dew, and the birds in the green woods above were singing their delicious choruses under the blushing morning sky. How well all things were remembered! The ancient towers and gables of the hall darkling against the east, the purple shadows on the green slopes, the quaint devices and carvings of the dial, the forest-crowned heights, the fair yellow plain cheerful with crops and corn, the shining river rolling through it towards the pearly hills beyond, all these were before us, along with a thousand beautiful memories of our youth, beautiful and sad, but as real and vivid in our minds as that fair and always remembered scene our eyes beheld once more. We forgot nothing. The memory sleeps, but wakens again. I often think how it shall be when, after the last sleep of death, the reveille should arouse us for ever, and the past, in one flash of self-consciousness, rush back, like the soul revivified the house would not be up for some hours yet it was july and the dawn was only just awake and here esmond opened himself to his mistress of the business he had in hand and what part frank was to play in it he knew he could confide anything to her and that the fond soul would die rather than reveal it and bidding her keep the secret from all he laid it entirely before his mistress always as staunch a little loyalist as any in the kingdom and indeed was quite sure that any plan of his was secure of her applause and sympathy never was such a glorious scheme to her partial mind never such a devoted knight to execute it an hour or two may have passed whilst they were having their colloquy beatrix came out to them just as their talk was over her tall beautiful form robed in sable which she wore without ostentation ever since last year's catastrophe, sweeping over the green terrace, and casting its shadows before her across the grass. She made us one of her grand curtsies, smiling, and called us the young people. She was older, paler, and more majestic than in the year before. Her mother seemed the youngest of the two. She never once spoke of her grief, Lady Castlewood told Esmond, or alluded, save by a quiet word or two, to the death of her hopes. When Beatrix came back to Castlewood she took to visiting all the cottages and all the sick. She set up a school of children, and taught singing to some of them. We had a pair of beautiful old organs in Castlewood Church, on which she played admirably, so that the music there came to be known in the country for many miles around, and no doubt people came to see the fair organist as well as to hear her parson tusher and his wife were established at the vicarage but his wife had brought him no children wherewith tom might meet his enemies at the gate honest tom took care not to have many such his great shovel hat was in his hand for everybody he was profuse of bows and compliments he behaved to esmond as if the colonel had been a commander-in-chief he dined at the hall that day being sunday and would not partake of pudding except under extreme pressure he deplored my lord's perversion but drank his lordship's health very devoutly and an hour before at church sent the colonel to sleep with a long learned and refreshing sermon esmond's visit home was but for two days the business he had in hand calling him away and out of the country ere he went he saw beatrix but once alone and then she summoned him out of the long tapestry-room where he and his mistress were sitting quite as in old times into the adjoining chamber that had been viscountess isabel's sleeping-apartment and where esmond perfectly well remembered seeing the old lady sitting up in the bed in her night-rail that morning when the troop of guard came to fetch her the most beautiful woman in england lay in that bed now whereof the great damask hangings were scarce faded since esmond saw them last here stood beatrix in her black robes holding a box in her hand twas that which esmond had given her before her marriage stamped with a coronet which the disappointed girl was never to wear and containing his aunt's legacy of diamonds you had best take these with you harry says she i have no need of diamonds any more There was not the least token of emotion in her quiet low voice. She held out the black shagreen case with her fair arm, that did not shake in the least. Esmond saw she wore a black velvet bracelet on it, with my lord Duke's picture in enamel. He had given it her but three days before he fell. Esmond said the stones were his no longer, and strove to turn off that proffered restoration with a laugh. "'Of what good, says he, are they to me? "'The diamond loop to his hat did not set off Prince Eugene, "'and will not make my yellow face look any handsomer.' "'You will give them to your wife, cousin,' says she. "'My cousin, your wife has a lovely complexion and shape.' "'Beatrix,' Esmond burst out, the old fire flaming out as it would at times, "'will you wear those trinkets at your marriage? "'You whispered once you did not know me. "'You know me better now. "'How I sought!' What I have sighed for, for ten years, what foregone! A price for your constancy, my lord, says she. Such a pure chevalier wants to be paid. Oh, fie cousin! Again, Esmond spoke out, if I do something you have at heart, something worthy of me and you, something that shall make me a name with which to endow you, will you take it? There was a chance for me once, you said. Is it impossible to recall it? never shake your head but hear me say you will hear me a year hence if i come back to you and bring you fame will that please you if i do what you desire most what he who is dead desired most will that soften you what is it henry says she her face lighting up what mean you "'Ask no questions,' he said. "'Wait, and give me but time. "'If I bring back that you long for, "'that I have a thousand times heard you pray for, "'will you have no reward for him "'who has done you that service? "'Put away those trinkets, keep them. "'It shall not be at my marriage, "'it shall not be at yours, "'but if man can do it, "'I swear a day shall come "'when there shall be a feast in your house, "'and you shall be proud to wear them. "'I say no more now. "'Put aside these words, "'and lock away yonder box "'until the day when I shall remind you of both.' All I pray of you now is to wait and remember. "'You are going out of the country,' says Beatrix, in some agitation. "'Yes, to-morrow,' says Esmond. "'To Lorraine, cousin,' says Beatrix, laying her hand on his arm. "'Twas the hand on which she wore the Duke's bracelet. "'Stay, Harry,' continued she, with a tone that had more despondency in it than she was accustomed to show. "'Hear a last word. "'I do love you. "'I do admire you. "'Who would not that has known such love as yours has been for us all? "'But I think I have no heart. "'At least I have never seen the man that could touch it. "'And had I found him, I would have followed him in rags "'had he been a private soldier, or to sea, "'like one of those buccaneers you used to read to us about "'when we were children. "'I would do anything for such a man, bear anything for him. "'But I never found one. "'You were ever too much of a slave to win my heart. "'Even my Lord Duke could not command it. "'I had not been happy had I married him. "'I knew that three months after our engagement, "'and was too vain to break it. "'Oh, Harry, I cried once or twice, "'not for him, but with tears of rage, "'because I could not be sorry for him. "'I was frightened to find I was glad of his death, "'and were I joined to you, "'I should have the same sense of servitude, "'the same longing to escape. "'We should both be unhappy, "'and you the most, "'who are as jealous as the Duke was himself. "'I tried to love him, "'I tried, indeed I did, affected gladness when he came, submitted to hear when he was by me, and tried the wife's part I thought I was to play for the rest of my days. But half an hour of that complacence wearied me, and what would a lifetime be? My thoughts were away when he was speaking, and I was thinking, oh, that this man would drop my hand and rise up from before my feet.' I knew his great and noble qualities, greater and nobler than mine a thousand times, as yours are, cousin, I tell you, a million and a million times better. But t'was not for these I took him. I took him to have a great place in the world, and I lost it. I lost it, and do not deplore him, and I often thought, as I listened to his fond vows and ardent words, "'Oh, if I yield to this man and meet the other, I shall hate him and leave him.' "'I am not good, Harry.' my mother is gentle and good like an angel. I wonder how she should have had such a child. She is weak, but she would die rather than do a wrong. I am stronger than she, but I would do it out of defiance. I do not care for what the parsons tell me with their droning sermons. I used to see them at court as mean and as worthless as the meanest woman there. Oh, I am sick and weary of the world.' I wait but for one thing, and when 'tis done, I will take Frank's religion and your poor mother's, and go into a nunnery, and end like her. Shall I wear the diamonds then? They say the nuns wear their best trinkets the day they take the veil. I will put them away as you bid me. Farewell, cousin. Mamma is pacing the next room, racking her little head, to know what we have been saying. She is jealous, all women are. I sometimes think that is the only womanly quality I have. Farewell, farewell, brother.' she gave him her cheek as a brotherly privilege the cheek was as cold as marble esmond's mistress showed no signs of jealousy when he returned to the room where she was she had schooled herself so as to look quite inscrutably when she had a mind amongst her other feminine qualities she had that of being a perfect dissembler He rode away from Castlewood to attempt the task he was bound on, and stand or fall by it. In truth, his state of mind was such that he was eager for some outward excitement to counteract that gnawing malady which he was inwardly enduring. End of chapter seven, recorded February second, two thousand eight, in Yosemite, California, by Rachel Ellen.